0: Welcome to Out of the Question, a podcast that looks behind some common questions and uncovers the question behind the question while providing real solutions for Biblical World and Life View. Your host is Andrea Schwartz, a teacher and mentor and founder of the Chalcedon Teacher Training Institute.
1: Today I am pleased to have a return guest from last year, Vishal Mangalwadi. Last year, I discussed with him his third revolution in education a project geared to have the church reclaim its Christ-appointed mission to teach and disciple the nations. Vishal is a prolific author with books I highly recommend you read, including The Book That Made Your World, This Book Changed Everything, and Truth and Transformation, to name just a few. I've had the opportunity to hear Vishal lecture in person and have watched many of his YouTube channel video presentation. Vishal has a comprehensive view of the scriptures and the admonition of our Lord to exercise a teaching role when it comes to the church. Today's topic is an exploration of Vishal's thesis that the church of Jesus Christ has allowed itself to be hijacked with false ideas of our past, present, and future and that has everything to do with how the American church, and by extension, the church in the West, has abdicated its vital role. Welcome, Vishal. Thanks for including me in what I know to be an extremely busy schedule.
0: Well, thank you very much. I'm honored to have met you on two successive Sundays this last few two weeks, three weeks. I'm glad to be talking to you.
1: Okay, let me preface our discussion with the reality that for some people, their paradigms will be threatened and challenged with your perspective. This is not something that particularly bothers you as you feel that vibrant conversation about important matters is something that the church should do. And so I was thinking about a good analogy that maybe modern man would grasp regarding your point of view. And I came up with, Vishal, identity theft. Identity theft is something we're familiar with, a very unpleasant situation when it happens to you, where someone steals the fruits of your labor and appropriates what's rightfully yours. Would Mm -hmm. you say that the church suffers from identity theft in that it has lost its role and purpose to secular humanistic philosophies, often without much challenge?
0: That is correct that church has lost its voice. It was created to take the kingdom of God uh, to every part of the world. But the, Jesus said that the church he was building uh, will be a force against which the gates of hell will not prevail. But in fact, the gates of hell have, have been prevailing against the church for close to a 100 years in North America and a little longer in Europe. So the ch- church has um, been marginalized. No longer believes that it is the light which will remove darkness from society. It believes that the darkness will keep overcoming the light until the light, which is sitting on the right hand of God, comes down, the darkness will rule. So, yes, church—the Western church—is a defeated community, and the primary reason is its theological failures and compromises, particularly during the last hundred years.
1: Okay, some people would say Vishal. Well, church history has lots of peaks and valleys. Uh, don't we have to expect that sometimes things will be darker than other times and that sometimes the church advances and sometimes it stagnates? Is that Do you consider that a normal reality in terms of the life of the church?
0: That is true. Right now, the church is going through a deep valley. It is time now to begin to become a victorious church. That's what Jesus is admonishing the seven churches in uh, the book of Revelation, that you need to be overcomers. You need to be victorious. So uh, given the fact that we have fallen, doesn't mean that we should remain fallen, remain where we are.
1: A lot of people might criticize you because You don't delve into other people's commentaries, specifically on the book of Revelation, because they don't believe that someone can have a fresh look and maybe a paradigm shift in terms of how one reads the book. And you made a point at one point that John, the author of the book of the Revelation, his sources were not this person's commentary or that person's commentary. His sources were the books of Isaiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Micah, Zechariah, Psalms, and Proverbs, as well as the Gospels. So these, along with Paul's epistles, were the only commentaries available, and even at that, to a few of John's original readers. So why do you think that there is a loss when we don't understand the prophetic books, and and I think it's interesting you include Psalms and Proverbs as prophetic books, that people lose their way and they get sort of ghettoized into a particular point of view and try to make sense of the world with that point of view.
0: Uh, I think th- this problem has been developing over a long period of time that if you read daily devotional books, uh, such as Daily Bread or Streams in the Desert, these are wonderful devotional works. But if you're reading, and I think uh, like Intervarsity Movement promoted uh, a method of quiet time, Bible study, which was called Search the Scriptures. This is giving you a bit here, a bit there, a bit there. And you never develop a biblical worldview when you're reading Bible here and there. And you read the scriptures devotionally, not worldviewishly. And therefore, you're not really able to understand the worldview of the scriptures, which underlies the, let's say, Western optimism. The church is pessimistic about the immediate future, but Overall, Western culture has the a massive reservoir, underground water of optimism, which is shaped by the word of God, particularly the book of Revel- Revelation. But the whole vision of the new Jerusalem, new heaven and new earth is coming from Isaiah, especially from Isaiah 60 to 65. Isaiah chapter one begins with seeing the rottenness sinfulness sickness of israel but it concludes with a new jerusalem new heaven new earth a renewal of all things so uh, likewise ezekiel ezekiel has been prophesying until chapter 32 that it, uh, jerusalem will be destroyed he he was already a captive because Nebuchadnezzar had come taking young people, including Daniel and his friends and Ezekiel, as captives to Babylon, yet there had not been a repentance in the temple in Jerusalem. So Ezekiel is saying that this temple will be destroyed. It is finally destroyed uh, by the time of Ezekiel chapter 33. From chapter 37, well, 34, but particularly... Uh, chapter Thirty Seven: The Valley of the Dry Bones. Can this these bones live? Is there hope for this nation? Now, uh, the that hope is then captured with uh, the vision of the a new temple in Jerusalem, from which the river of life is flowing, turning uh, the desert into gardens and uh, salt water into fresh water. Uh, and the, the next to the river is the tree of life with healing, uh, leaves for healing of the nations. So we, which is the vision that uh, Revelation picks up in uh, at the end of Revelation. So clearly the optimism, which is there from Isaiah and Ezekiel uh, and, and Daniel, Daniel is a captive. In Babylon, later in Persia, he's praying for the rebuilding of Jerusalem. He believes that this will happen because Jeremiah has prophesied that after 70 years, uh, the temple will be rebuilt. And Jerusalem will be rebuilt. So he's willing to go into the lion's den because he defy king's decree and suffer for it, pay for it, because he really wants God to rebuild his country, his nation, his city. So that optimism is at the root of the book of Revelation that although in the uh, in chapter two and three, the seven churches are defeated, demoralized, compromised, fearful, insecure. But in fact, he's making all things new, beginning with his church and through his church into the rest of the world. So uh, that optimism has shaped Western culture. Although consciously much of the church and much of Western uh, theology has rejected that optimism, misusing Paul's uh, st- uh, words to in Timothy, uh, etc., that uh, in the last days, things will go from bad to worse. So uh, the, the great Bible teachers and by great, I mean famous Bible teachers and preachers have misunderstood Paul who is saying in those same chapters that, yes, evil is marching on, but preaching and teaching of the word of God will change individuals, change families, change societies, and ultimately change the future. Because the kingdom of God, Begins with sowing of the seed. That seed is the double-edged sword, sword of the spirit, which overcomes evil. So uh, the uh, the Western, the evangelical pessimism in the West is unbiblical, although it quotes uh, Paul, but it doesn't understand Paul's optimistic worldview because. the Western church doesn't really read the Bible worldviewishly. It reads the Bible devotionally, and that is a result of the whole systems uh, such as search the scriptures or daily bread or streams in the uh, desert uh, that have been popular uh, as part of evangelical pietism of the last hundred years.
1: I can actually relate to that. When I first came to faith and I knew that you were supposed to read the Bible, um, it was prior to having met Dr. Rush Dooney and understanding a biblical worldview that doesn't nullify God's law. Difficult books, certainly the book of Isaiah, the book of Ezekiel, uh, the book of Zechariah were difficult books. And the books like Daniel most people would gravitate towards, you know, Daniel in the lion's den, the three men in the furnace, but the rest of it was a mystery. And for the longest time, I couldn't even read the book of Revelation because I'll be honest, it gave me a headache because I didn't understand it. And I remember being in an evangelical church and the person said, well, the, the preacher, there's premillennialism, amillennialism post-millennialism, but I'm a pan millennialist. I know that it all pans out in the end. Everybody laughed hysterically. Um, it wasn't a satisfying answer for me, but one of the things I th- thought, especially after knowing that there were books that Hal Lindsey had written and Tim LaHaye, that you had to have like the inside scoop to understand these. And then of course it would be based on the worldview and the eschatology of these other folks. And if that's what your paradigm was, it was very hard to shake it. And so one of the things that I appreciate what you've done with your thesis is you hold the Bible to mean what it says. For example, we hear about the tree of life in the book of the Revelation, but there are many references to trees prior to that, For example, Psalm 1, and uh, there was a parable of the trees in Judges 9, and then there's another talk about two trees in Zechariah 4. Talk about how John was intentionally borrowing these images in order to communicate what he wanted these churches to know.
0: If I may backtrack a bit and answer the question that you first ask about me not reading commentaries uh, to understand revelation the, the uh, uh, to connect the answer to the second and third question is that i developed this habit once i came to believe that the bible is god's word uh, i was about 2021 20, then i started reading bible cover to cover so i did read revelation even if i didn't understand every time i would come to the end of the bible i will read revelation Uh, But about four, five, six years ago, I forget exactly when, uh, when I came to Revelation, I realized I don't understand this and I don't understand that. uh, Just as you admitted, Uh, that was my state of mind as well. So then I decided that if God gave this book for me to understand, then I must read it in order to understand And I have to discard this method of reading one chapter a day or two chapters a day. I have to read this book as a book to understand it. So I began, I spent three months reading nothing except the book of Revelation. I'll read the whole book on one Saturday. Or I'll read sections like letters to seven churches or seven trumpets or seven bowls of God's wrath. uh, Whole sections in one Uh, sitting. Uh, And then I will go back and read one paragraph in a day and meditate upon it. So I read and reread and reread and reread. And that's when uh, I came to a point where I, although I didn't understand everything, I knew exactly what is there in every passage. And I began to see that, oh, here John is actually alluding to a passage from Ezekiel. Uh, Here he is alluding to a passage from uh, Isaiah, or, which I had read, or Daniel, etc., or Psalms, Psalm 2. Ask of me and I will make nations your inheritance. You will rule over them with an iron scepter. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. Now, that's a verse that is repeated several times in the book of Revelation. So the book of Revelation is borrowing from Psalms. And as you just said, the concept of tree. Uh, which is which whose leaves do not wither uh, which is flourishing is taken from someone so much of revelation is particularly the phrase tree of life uh, that you asked in the last question is proverbs has number of verses about the f- fear of the lord is tree of life the fruit of the righteous is tree of life words of the righteous which bring healing is tree of life, etc. So I began to look that the whole mindset that when you read a phrase like uh, the, the tree with the for leaves of healing, or leaves are for the healing of the nations. That this must refer to the tree in Genesis three. Well, no, every Jew who is following John would be familiar with the book of Proverbs and his, he would think of the tree of life, which brings healing to the nations as it is discussed in gen, in the book of Proverbs. So once I became really familiar with uh, every passage in the book of Revelation. Uh, I began to then go through the original sources in the Old Testament and in the Gospels which inspired John, particularly the Gospel of John itself, because John himself is saying in chapter 15, for example, that my father is the gardener. Jesus says, I am the true wine. If you abide in me, you will bear fruit. In fact, you are chosen so that you might bear fruit and your fruit should remain. So, why do I have to not see that John, who has said twice in John chapter 4, Jesus speaking to the Samaritan woman, that if you believe, uh, if you drink the water that I'll give you, it will be, uh, become a Spring of life, fountain of life uh, from your heart, everlasting life. In John chapter 7, Jesus stands up uh, before the crowd uh, in the temple on the last day of the feast, the feast and cries out in loud voice that whoever believes in me, out of his belly shall flow the rivers of living water. So John is writing this. Then in Revelation, he is saying that the rivers of living water is flowing th- from the throne of God. Where is this throne of God? Is my heart God's throne? Should the river of light be flowing through my heart? Is this what John is saying? So to think of the book of Revelation as disconnected with the gospel of John or the other gospels and the Old Testament books is a basic fallacy Once I began to realize that the source book that John is using for the book of Revelation is the Old Testament. And the only commentaries that his readers, not all the readers, because most people were illiterate and the books were very expensive since they had to be hand copied. So everybody didn't have the Bible, but everybody would be listening because Jews are the people of the book. Once Gentiles become believers in Jesus Christ, they become people of the book. The book is read to them, uh, even if they are illiterate. That's the source material. Those books of the Old Testament and the New Testament are the only commentaries that John's readers would have available. Why then do I need the commentaries? That have lots of cultural baggage, like evangelical pessimism of the 20th century, that evil will triumph, that the, bo- the Church of Jesus Christ is the useless body of Christ. His useful body is sitting in heaven. This is the mindset of every preacher, including famous preachers like John MacArthur, that uh, I highly respect him because of his stand against unjust, illegal edicts, but he is the source of a lot of evangelical pessimism uh, that uh, we are the useless body of Christ. Christ's useful body is sitting up on the right hand because God has two hands. On the right hand uh, of God is sitting the, uh, the light of this world and unless that light comes we cannot overcome the darkness that is engulfing California or the USA. So this pessimism, uh, these uh, doctrines, why do I have to accept when I have the original sources with me that John uses to write Revelation?
1: Okay, so I think there is a prevailing arrogant opinion that we're a lot smarter than the first century church. And so I don't really know if people would say those seven churches were really confused. They had no idea what these letters meant. And yet it, it would seem like a fool's errand if God is telling John to write these these letters that God expects that he'll be understood. And today we have people who have these intricate eschatological views on the one hand, it's helicopters and the map of the Middle East. And on another hand, it's like, well, everything is terrible, but God will take care of it. And even the post-millennial view, there are, um my experience, Vishal, a lot of pessimistic postmillennialists because they don't see the church as being empowered.
0: Pessimism is being read in the scriptures, but it has sociological context. The optimism that developed in the West was part of the West's unique understanding of the concept of human dignity. This was articulated by a Roman Catholic, young Roman Catholic intellectual, Pico della Mirandola, about 50 years before Luther's Reformation began, or 40 years before that. The question that Renaissance had been discussing, the question was started by Petrarch, the Italian poet who is the father of the Renaissance. The question is, who is greater, man or angels? And at the face of it, the biblical data was contradictory. The whole of Europe was, of course, worshipping angels and saints and praying to them. Uh, But the biblical data was that John... Bows down to worship angel. Daniel bows down before angels. Both are rebuked and stopped. Don't worship us. And then the statement in Hebrews that angels are actually ministering spirits created to minister to us, God's children. Paul's statement that we will be judging angels. So the biblical data raised the question, who is greater, man or angels? And the the issue continued in the Renaissance. Salutati was an important writer who discusses this. But the most important writer was Pico. Uh, In his oration on the dignity of man, he argues that man is greater than angels on the grounds, two grounds, one creation that... Only man is made in God's image, not the angels. Second is incarnation, that God did not become an angel, God became a man. Jesus Christ to save us from slavery to Satan and for us to become the sons of God. And the question that Tico della Mirandola is discussing in this oration is in this chain of evolution, this is of course centuries before Darwin. Uh, From earthworm, he doesn't know anything about amoebas and bacteria and viruses, but from earthworms all the way to angels, archangels, thrones, and powers. Uh, Thrones and powers he uses as, as some supernatural creatures. Where does human being fit? And Pico's answer is that human being doesn't fit anywhere. He can become as dumb as. earthworm, but he can also become more powerful than the greatest archangel. So man is free, uh, which is what, of course, Genesis 11 is saying, that man will be able to do whatever he wants to do because everybody is speaking the same language and they're establishing their own dominion, etc. So uh, this understanding of the freedom of man Which means that we are not bound by history, we are not bound by uh, traditions, we are not bound by Pharaoh's military, superior military strength or political authoritarianism, but that we can change the future, that we are slaves, but tomorrow we can be a great nation, that future can be changed. It's not written in our stars or our foreheads or on, 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 on our palms, uh, but the, the future is open. This, this confidence that human beings can actually shape their own destiny became a defining feature of Western civilization. In the 19th century, secularists took it. Well, they started t- stealing it plagiarizing it in the 18th century, but particularly in the 19th century, secular humanism thought that without God's intervention as he intervened in uh, liberating slaves out of Egypt, without God's intervention, we were smart enough, able enough to shape our own destiny. So Western optimism was secularized by secular humanists, but that that up that secular optimism actually produced the age of ideologies so communism fascism nazism these were optimistic ideologies that we can actually create utopia this secular optimism went up in the mushroom clouds over nagasaki and hiroshima we are not as good as we think we are, uh, but uh, Stalin and Hitler, uh, they confirmed that we cannot create utopia. When man tries tries to become the Messiah, he actually becomes the monster. So pessimism set in in the secular world, but by that time, Christians had re- in America, in Europe, retreated from the universities and retreated into Bible schools and Bible seminaries. So a professor at Wheaton College or or Moody Bible Institute or Dallas Theological Seminary, he didn't have the training to understand the sociological developments that are happening in Western culture, that it is a secular, humanistic, optimism which has been demolished by two world wars, rise of Nazism, fascism, and you know, communism. And it was this pessimism which Tim LaHaye and whole Primal Crowd, which has been teaching pessimism, paralyzing the American church. This pessimism is really a Baptized version, baptized with biblical verses of secular pessimism. But Western optimism came from the biblical understanding of what a human being is. So I go back to my original point that Western church has harmed itself because it doesn't read the Bible to shape its worldview. It reads the Bible devotionally, a little here, a little there. And you never understand, uh, instead of shaping culture, you allow culture to shape you, shape your theologians, shape your pastors, and they just baptize the secular West with biblical verses. That's what has happened. The heart of my critique is that All this pessimism, which is baptized with, uh, quoting Paul from 1 Timothy 3 or 2 Timothy 3, etc. This is really uh, the failure of the American church to allow the Bible to shape its worldview.
1: Okay, so I do understand that. And you make the point that when the Bible refers to kings and priests and Levites, that now in the era since Christ has died, rose, and ascended to heaven, that we are kings and priests and Levites. And our job is to disciple the nations. And so there was something that you said about when Jesus is referred to as the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. You seem to be saying that the lowercase k for kings and the lowercase l for lords is a reference to his people, to the church. Would you explain that a little bit?
0: Sure. Um, My thesis, uh, I gave four lectures in Philadelphia last month on the theme of the victorious church and the healing of the nations. And uh, one of the points I make in those lectures is that the one central doctrine of the book of Revelation is kingship of all believers, and this is a doctrine that has been suppressed particularly by American Christianity because the secularist took over the concept of separation of church and state. This, this, this is actually a problem that comes from Europe, because in Europe the state church persecuted the independent churches, nonconformists, anabaptists. Quakers. So many of those people who came here, and different colonies did bring the European concept of state church here, and but it was opposed. Eventually, that no, the state shall not establish any church, nor prohibit uh, free practice of any religion, any denomination. So, the uh, uh, there were healthy elements lessons that have been learned from the tragedies of European established churches, failures of Europe impacted America. But then secularists took over that that separation of church and state. This means that now in the popular mind, a priest cannot be a king. Whereas the book of Revelation in every single chapter or section is arguing for the kingship of all believers. So Revelation 1, 5 and 6 is saying that Jesus has made us kings and priests and we shall reign on the earth. Now, American translations tend to translate those verses as he has made us kingdom of priests. But they can't get away from the second phrase that we shall reign on the earth. In chapter 2 of Revelation, verses 26 and 27. Jesus says that if you overcome, I will uh, give you the authority to rule over nations. You will rule them with an iron scepter. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. That's the authority I received in Psalm 2. And I will give it to you because you are taking up my yoke of governance upon your shoulders. You will have the iron scepter. You will have the throne you will have the crown, which is promised to the other churches. Revelation 3, every Christian memorizes that, that. He's standing at the door knocking. If you open the door, he will come in. Is this first coming or second coming or third coming? No, oh, no, no, this is not second coming. So are there more than two comings that I will come in if you open the door? But the important point for, uh, with reference to your question is verse 21. Why is he coming into my heart? He says, if you let me come in, and verse 21 is never memorized or quoted in American evangelicalism. But that verse is saying that uh, if you let me come into your heart, I'll sit with you. You will sup with me. If your heart becomes my throne, I will let you sit on my throne as I have sat down on my father's throne. Now, there in verse 21, Jesus is not saying that I'm sitting at my father's right hand. He's saying I'm sitting on my father's throne and you will sit on my throne, meaning you are the ones who are going to manage God's kingdom. Now, that's the theme taken up in chapter four of Revelation, that God's throne is there around the throne of God. There are 24 elders. Who are these elders? The Revelation never explains that. But the whole tradition of the elders in the in the Bible is that represented wise, spirit filled, just fair people who are chosen to make sure that God's will is being done in Israel or in the local church. They are the elders. They are the ones who are managing God's kingdom. So chapter 5 of Revelation, verses 9 and 10 are my favorite verses because Jesus is worshipped in heaven. Why? He, he's the lamb who has just walked into God's presence, taken the scroll, sealed with seven seals. And he's worshipped because he's worthy. Why is he worthy? Because he shed his blood. To purchase slaves of Satan to make them sons of God who will serve their father as his priests and kings. Now, that's the prodigal son. Prodigal son has rebelled against his father. Now he has come back to serve his father. So he's the priest because now he's serving his father. But he's the king because he's managing his father's state. Every single morning he goes to work in his father's state. Nobody needs to tell him what to do because he knows what his father wants to be done. And he makes sure that not only he's doing his father's will, everyone else is doing his father's will. So uh, this is uh, uh, John uses a cryptic phrase in the book of Revelation, uh, at least twice, maybe three times. That I saw the lamb seated at the center of the throne. this is god 's throne. Why is the lamb sitting there? Why is the lamb being worshipped in the throne room of God in heaven that's heresy for a Jew a blasphemy, abomination that a lamb is being worshipped unless the father and son are the one are one so that's what begins to go on i've just gone up to chapter 1 to 5 but you can go on to from 6 onwards right to the end the point of the book of revelation is that sinners who have returned to their father are kings they shall reign on earth the 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 millennium passage from revelation 20 is consistently misquoted by the premillennialists. It's not saying that Christ will come and rule with the saints. The passage is saying saints will rule with Christ. We are already seated with him on the throne in the heavenlies, given the kingdom to manage God's kingdom on earth. So, uh, so yes. Um, The the one essential doctrine of the book of Revelation is kingship of all believers. Americans don't understand it because the whole secular culture says priests cannot be kings.
1: Well, not only that, um, when people turn their children over to the secularists for education, we're told that kings are bad and democracy is good. And the idea of embracing our roles as kings on the earth, that wherever our foot trods, we claim that for Jesus Christ, that was known in the early church, and that's how we got Western civilization. But now people take it to mean, oh, you know, you can't be arrogant and say you should be the one ruling. And the question is, if you're in Christ and you follow his word, Why shouldn't you be ruling?
0: Exactly. A friend just published a book called Aaron's Democracy, Moses' Republic. I haven't read the book, but I've received the book. I like the title because Aaron is listening to the mob and building, making this calf, which people begin to worship. That's democracy, the popular public opinion ruling. Moses establishes a republic when he says that you choose, you elect men who are wise, who are just, who are fair, who are respected, who have a record of service. You elect them. They won't be able to govern you because you're very difficult in their own wisdom and strength. But I will lay hands on them. They will receive the Holy Spirit. And they will rule over you. I'm not going to be your king. My sons are not going to be your kings. So this concept of this conflict, democracy and republic, both are Greek terms. But from the very beginning of the founding of America as a a nation, uh, the terms have been there. The debate has been there. And this certainly needs revisiting. Uh, our problem is that our leadership, leadership of the American churches, that is being trained by seminaries, Bible schools, and they do not teach the application of the Bible to politics, political science. And therefore, secularized universities who have a vested interest in suppressing the biblical. Basis of American civilization, American constitutionalism, law, elections, governance, etc. American universities have created an elite who does not know what is political freedom. That's why after spending trillions of dollars in Afghanistan and Iraq and Libya and Somalia and Sudan and many of these places, uh, America has experience spectacular failure. You can change regime using the Pentagon. You can write constitutions that are brilliant. You can conduct free and fair elections, but you cannot teach what is liberty. So, American experiment in the Middle East has been a flop because American intellectuals don't understand freedom because they deliberately reject the role the Bible played and the Bible's worldview played in America itself becoming free. And therefore, it's not just that your experiment with freedom have failed in the Middle East. And in many other places in the world, uh, Guatemala is a very good example where CIA invested billions of dollars. But America will lose freedom itself because America no longer understands freedom, neither secular universities nor Bible seminaries.
1: So as you've pointed out many places, many of the original universities were Christian universities, and they were meant to teach This victorious eschatology and the practical application of helping those who have need. So you had, especially in the early church orphanages, you had things that would deal specifically with claiming the most rejected and having the desire to turn them into children of God. We've lost that. And there are those who will argue Christians have no place in politics. It's a dirty business. And they're actually proud of themselves that they do their little devotionals and they figure it's just a personal relationship with Jesus Christ as opposed to a dominion and reigning relationship with Jesus Christ.
0: Yes, that is very tragic. A few days ago, I was reading a lecture that the president of Harvard University gave in 2019 in Beijing University. Now, most people don't realize that Beijing University was started by American Presbyterian missionary. He deliberately built the buildings to look Chinese, but it was a missionary movement. And Mao Zedong was a junior librarian in that university, uh, and he hated capitalism partly because he was being paid very little as a junior librarian uh, compared to the professors and all, the sense of equality that he had embraced with communism uh, came from his personal experience. And later, of course, it became the uh, University of Beijing the source of teaching of communism. But the American the president of Harvard University is lecturing there, and the lecture is online, his website. And uh, he makes a very interesting point that... The motto of Harvard is Veritas. Originally, Veritas, for truth for Christ and his church. But now, of course, Christ and his church was removed more than 100 years ago. It's just Veritas, pursuit of truth. But he says that university is actually pursuing excellence, i.e., not truth. We uh, pursue excellence... Because every faculty member says, I do not know. I'm here. And the condition of being here in Harvard is to acknowledge that I'm ignorant. I do not know the truth. I cannot help any student find the truth. Truth is no longer our goal. Excellence is our goal, is what we are seeking here. That's why we are still world's number one. So giving truth up is to give up freedom because it is truth that liberates. And this problem is secondarily a university problem. Primarily, this is an evangelical problem. The number one failure of the evangelical church in America is that it gave up truth as its emblem. It said Reformation was by faith alone. Salvation has nothing to do with truth. Salvation is by faith alone. But that is because our ignorant theologians do not understand that people like Luther and Calvin and Zwingli and and Knox, they were fighting for faith in truth, not faith in ignorance. I don't believe because I'm ignorant. I know whom I have believed, says Paul. Daniel says people that know their God shall be strong and do exploit. Isaiah says that God is going to baptize his servant, not with a spirit of irrationality, but with spirit of knowledge, wisdom, understanding, counsel, fear of the Lord, which is the beginning of wisdom. A church baptized with the spirit of truth. This is how Jesus summarizes Isaiah 11 in John 14, John 15, John 16. Three times Jesus says, I will baptize you with the spirit of truth. He will bear witness to the truth. You will bear witness to the truth because I have come to bear witness to the truth. And therefore, if the son shall make you free, you shall be free indeed. But the evangelical movement, which does not understand Protestant Reformation, Gave up truth and began to promote faith in whatever I'm told from the pulpit without checking it out.
1: Let me just point something out, and I found it very interesting. Since we have this tendency to think Jesus came to save souls, you've talked about this, so I would like you to talk about it. What did Jesus say was his purpose when he was standing before Pilate? Did he say, I came here to save souls?
0: He said, for this reason I was born, for this purpose I came, to bear witness to the truth. Whoever is on the side of truth listens to me. Uh, Should truth reign? Pilate knows that Jesus is not guilty. But he goes on to say, why wouldn't you talk to me? Don't you know that I have the power to crucify you or set you free? Wait a minute. You've just confessed three times and before you, Herod has confessed and the chief priest has confessed that there is no reason to crucify this man. He's not guilty. If he is not guilty, do you have the power to crucify an innocent man? Or are you under the authority of truth that if a man is innocent, state exists to defend his inalienable right to life? Was Christ's inalienable right to life self evident to Pilate or to his contemporaries? Th- that, that's actually the heart of Americans' problem because America deceived itself when it said that we hold these truths to be self evident that all men are created equal. This was never self evident in America. It was never self evident anywhere in the world. These were revealed truths, but American theology, Quoting Romans 1 and Romans 2, misunderstanding what Paul is saying, kept on defending the nonsense of common sense, that these truths that all men are created is common sense, it's self-evident, it's written in everyone's heart. It is not. Not a single Indian sage saint scholar ever saw that all men are created equal, that male and female are created equal, that slaves and slave owners are created equal. Deists who did not want to be, admit that these truths came through us to us through the sacred scriptures, through the preaching, particularly of Jonathan Edwards uh, and, and George Whitfield. Whitfield was the one who taught human equality. So uh, the American civilization began to go wrong, and in Fourth uh, of July, seventeen seventy six. And that is why by 1804, 1805, Trinitarian Christianity lost Harvard. Trinitarians fought for several decades. By 1880s, the Trinitarians gave up universities and retreated into Bible seminaries and Bible Institute. These are historical sociological problems of American Christianity. And they cannot be solved by Bible seminaries and missionary training programs. They require study of American history and American sociology of how did the church lose the West? How did the church lose America?
1: Let me bring up a couple of other things that I think your perspective really illuminates. You said that if you view things in a linear way, this happened, then this happened, then this happened. It's easy to get a skewed view. So for example, if you look at things sequentially and you say these things will happen shortly, and you have a whole eschatology that talks in terms of really he wasn't talking about the first century, he was talking about 2022. That sort of destroys language because soon means soon, as I like to tell people, if I tell you I'm going to be to dinner soon, I'm not really saying I'll be there in 2000 years. So you point out that the book of the revelation should be viewed much more like a diamond with many facets. And you look at it from this angle, you look at it from that angle, you turn it upside down, you bring it right side up and realize that this isn't a sequential prediction so much as a uniform understanding as to how God isn't just himself ruling, but how he is using his body, the church. And that's what's being manifested in terms of the book of the Revelation.
0: That is indeed the primary reason I reject all the classical paradigms of interpreting the book of Revelation as pre mill, amil, post mill, because they are all imposing a linear epistemology that the book of Revelation is chronological and we can find a timetable of his return in the book of Revelation. So, this is the epistemology, linear epistemology is the basic problem because the text is not linear and chronological. If you impose your perspective that, no, this is how we think because of the way how the Western mind has developed since Greece, this is the only way to think. Therefore, John must write the way we think and we will find uh, the clues. Uh, so you're really imposing your linear chronological epistemology. But John, if you begin to read the letters to the seven churches, then there are seven seals. And by the sixth seal, uh, there is the coming of the lamb in his wrath, which drives kings and mighty men and generals to the rocks, calling upon them to fall on us, save us. But you think the end has come. But in fact, uh, there are seven trumpets. And then by the seventh trumpet, you think the climax has come. Christ has come and the kingdoms of this world have become his kingdom. But then actually the end hasn't come. There are seven thunders and then there are seven bowls of God's wrath with the seventh bowl. The wrath of God is completed. And then you think, of course, now this is the end. But the angel says, no, 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 come, I will show you the beast and I will show you the lamb. And I will show you the prostitute and I will show you the bride and I will show you the kingdom of the beast, the political beast and the religious beast. And then I will show you the bride, the prostitute and the bride. And the whole climax of the book of Revelation is not the second coming of Christ, because Christ comes many times in the book of Revelation, at least seven or eight times he comes. But the Climax of the book of Revelation is coming of the bride. So, in chapters two and three, you see the bride in all her ugliness. But the lamb shed his blood to make her beautiful, glorious, radiant, uh, wearing beautiful white garments, etc. And then she comes, and sh- it's through her that the light of the lamb is reflected to the nations. And nations will walk in its light. In the new Jerusalem. After. Uh, millennium. Millennium happens in the first. eight Seven verses of chapter 20. From chapter. Uh, chapter 20 from, from verse 8. Is the great white throne judgment. Then in 21. Uh, after the great white throne judgment. Has happened. The angel says come. I will show you the bride. The wife of the lamb. And in the. The radiance of the bride, the kings of the nations will walk. Why are they walking in darkness after the final judgment that has happened in chapter 20? In 21, 22, the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. Why are there sick nations after New Jerusalem has come? If sinners are not able to enter the New Jerusalem, it does have very high walls, but it has no gates. I mean, gates are there, but gates are never shut, it says. So what's the point of having wall and gates that are never shut? And why do you have such high walls? Are you expecting some attack from aliens who are coming from a parallel universe? Because these walls are mechanisms of defense, are shields for defense. So, uh, why are there sick nations that need healing, which comes from the leaves that are in the New Jerusalem? And where is this New Jerusalem being built? Is it going to come as a UFO? This is the question that I discuss in my lectures in Philadelphia, uh, that they are on YouTube. We are yet to really edit them and put them up properly, but uh, all four of them are there. So, so the question of Back to epistemology, you see the climax coming, the Jesus coming seven, eight times in the book of Revelation. And yet in the end, it's not Jesus who is coming, it's the bride who is coming. So at the beginning of the book, at the end of the book, four times Jesus says, I'm coming quickly. American translation, I'm coming soon. What does soon mean? Would John think that he's coming 2,000, 3,000, 4,000 years later? Is that how his original readers will interpret that? Or is his coming, you open the door, I will come in? So his coming is soon, but the word coming doesn't mean second coming. You have a theological paradigm that his coming means second coming. And this creates major problem. This is the reason why Burton Russell in Cambridge became an atheist 100 years ago, because Jesus says in Matthew 10, that before all of you 12 have gone to all the uh, villages and towns of Israel, I will, son of man will come in his glory and kingdom. He says in Um, Matthew 16, after Peter confesses that you are Christ, the son of the living God, there are some of you standing here who will not taste death until they have seen the son of God coming. In chapter 24, when he's describing the destruction of the temple, that not one stone will be left upon another. Jesus says that there are some people standing here who will not taste death. Until these things have happened and the end has come. So was Jesus mistaken? Or is the Western eschatology imposing its paradigm of second coming? That the word coming must always mean coming. No. In the Gospels itself, Jesus comes many times. When he comes into, New Jer- into old Jerusalem on a donkey. This is coming of the king, which is fulfilling the prophecy made in Zechariah, that king has come when he's on the Mount of Transfiguration. He has come. But supremely, the cross is coming of Christ in glory and power and kingdom. Now, the Western theology does not see the cross as Christ coming in glory, but I've written about it uh, several times on Facebook. And uh, I've spoken about it, uh, that the New Testament clearly sees coming of Christ on the cross is coming in judgment. The prince of this world is judged. It's coming in glory. When I'm lifted up, I will draw all men unto myself. So the word coming doesn't mean second coming, except that the whole concept has become an evangelical mythology that is imposed upon the text of the New Testament. And this is what I'm calling for a fresh study. And to go back to your original point, yes, a reformation is a theological controversy which provokes people people to go back and study the primary sources. So... All these wonderful devotional books that people are reading and reading the scriptures here and there and teaching it from here and there in the Sunday school, uh, that should continue to build devotional life of the individuals. But we've got to go back to study the book of Revelation as a
1: book. So a couple of things as we close this up. You talk in terms of instead of the millennium being a linear thousand years, you talk about a parallel millennium. Now, I realize I'm not giving you a lot of opportunity to expose your whole thinking on it, but I would like you to give my listeners a taste of this concept.
0: I have two lectures on parallel millennium on YouTube, and I've written about it. Um, I do post these things on Facebook, um, but I've written about it here and there. So the The concept of parallel millennium is very simple, that the wheat and the weed will grow together until the end. The wheat and tares, as the old English Bibles say, that a man sowed good seed, but when it sprouted, there was also weed or tares. And the servant said, should we remove this, these weeds? And he said, no, you might harm the Saints as well, you may uh, hurt the saints. Let both grow together, tolerated until the end. Finally, there will be a final judgment. Your job right now is not to remove the tears, the weeds. Your job is to love the sinners. Saints and sinners will grow together. Sinners will persecute the saints. Saints will love and serve the sinners and seek to bring them under obedience of faith. There will be seasons and there will be times when saints have done their job. God has given the grace to sinners to see the light, to repent and turn to him. At that point, uh, a visitor coming through would see wheat in full blossom and he will hardly see that there is still weed. The Satan, Satan is not destroyed; he is only bound for a thousand years, and he will be released. So, the question for the concept of millennium is that concept of millennium does not begin with Revelation twenty; it begins with, for example, Isaiah, Isaiah eleven. The servant of the Lord will be baptized with spirit of wisdom, knowledge, understanding. And then through him, the earth will be filled with the knowledge of God as the waters cover the sea. The lion and the little lamb will live together. The cow and the bear and even men and women will be able to live together without cohabiting or flirting and using each other. It will be possible because the earth will be filled with the knowledge of God. Now, that's the vision that is the prophets are repeating. Isaiah continues that in Isaiah 35, and particularly from Isaiah 60, when the renewal of Israel and new heaven, new earth, new Jerusalem, that, that theme is picked up. That's a theme of Ezekiel, that yes, Jerusalem has been destroyed. Old Jerusalem has been destroyed. There is no hope. Can these bones live? Will there be a resurrection of the nation? And will this temple be rebuilt? Will there be river of life flowing which will bless the nations with tree of life whose leaves are for the healing of nations? And so so these visions, vision of the millennium, is repeated in the Old Testament again and again. Isaiah 2, Micah 4, that in the last days, the mountain of the Lord will be lifted high. All the nations will flock to it and say, please teach us. The law of the Lord will come from his mountain. And then nations will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. The instruments of war will become instruments of agriculture, horticulture, economic transformation and there will be no war because the kingdom of justice and peace will cover the earth. Daniel's vision of the stone becoming a mountain that covers the whole earth, etc. So the vision of millennium is there throughout the Old Testament. That's the whole purpose of God calling Abraham, you follow me, I will bless you, I will make you a great nation. Through you, I intend to bless all the nations that are living in darkness. They are fighting wars, but these wars will cease. Your offspring will become a source of blessing to the whole world. So, So that's the parallel millennium means that the wheat and the weed keep growing together. Satan is not destroyed. When I began actually reading that book of Revelation, as I said earlier, and I was starting to read chapter 20. First thing I noticed is it doesn't say that Jesus came to bind Satan. It says an angel came to bind Satan. Who is this angel? Why does he bind him for a thousand years and then release him? Once you have bound him, why don't you kill him? Throw him in hell. Well, maybe Jesus has become a liberal. He no longer believes in capital punishment. So, he gives him thousand years of imprisonment and then releases him to go out and deceive the nations. So, evil is not destroyed in the millennium. It continues to exist, but it is bound. Who has the authority to bind? Jesus says, I give you the authority to, to bind. What you bind on earth will be be bound in heaven. What you bind in heaven will be bound on earth. Satan was standing before Jesus during the 40 days of temptation. Why didn't Jesus bind him or kill him? Because Paul says in Romans sixteen twenty that it is under your feet that God of peace will soon crush Satan. No, no, no. We are the useless body of Christ. He can't possibly bind Satan under our feet. He has to send a mighty angel. Who is this angel? Seven times in chapters two and three of Revelation, Jesus says to John, write to the angel of the church in Ephesus. So write to the angel of the church in Laodicea. So John writes the letter to the angel of the church in Ephesus and some courier services to take that letter and deliver it in heaven. Even if there was a FedEx taking the letter to heaven, heaven is a very big place. Where is FedEx going to find the angel of the church of Ephesus? Does John have a specific address? Well, he does. In Revelation one twenty, John is told that these seven, seven stars in the right hand of Christ are seven angels the seven churches to whom he's supposed to send that those letters. So John is able to write to the angel of the church of Ephesus in the right hand of Christ uh, on the, the right-hand throne of God the Father in the throne room of heaven. So the FedEx now has a specific address of where to deliver. But the problem is, if a courier service is to deliver the letter to the angel in heaven, because that's where angels live. If those angels are already in the right hand of God, why does God need John to write letters to those angels? If the angels are in his right hand, can't he just speak to those angels? Obviously, the letters are written to the churches. Churches have to read those to those letters. So is the church being called the angel? In chapter 11 of Revelation, John is given a measuring rod and told, go and measure the temple. Which temple? The temple which is in the city that is Egypt, the Sodom, where the Lord was crucified. That's where the temple is. So obviously the book of Revelation is written before AD 70 when the temple is destroyed. But from verse 19 of chapter 11 of Revelation. John says that I saw the temple of heaven open. Now, then he repeats the phrase, the temple in heaven. Which temple is this? Because New Jerusalem has no temple. Is there a physical temple in heaven or is the temple in heaven is being built with living stones here on this earth and that's what john says in revelation 3:12 to the church in philadelphia that if you're victorious i will write on you the name of my god the name of the city of my god that you will become a pillar in the temple of god so the pillars of the temple of god are being built in philadelphia and they will have the name New Jerusalem written on them. So the temple in heaven, you are seated in heaven. You're being built up as a temple, heavenly temple, built of living stones. Now, this is very interesting because when the seven bolts of God's wrath, angels are coming in and out of the temple in heaven to impact the earth. What's happening on the earth in those later chapters after chapter 11 is impacted by what's happening in the temple of heaven, out of which angels are speak, coming and speaking and prophesying and giving orders, etc. Now, that, that's we don't have the time to uh, begin to look at this phrase, the temple in heaven, but Basically, what I'm saying is that the the theologians and exegetes who uh, read all the commentaries on Revelation, but do not pay attention to the question, is there a temple in heaven or is the temple in heaven being built here on this earth with living stones? Is this temple in heaven, which is being built here on earth, supposed to be impacting the world, changing the world? Towards the will of God being done on this earth. The sinners getting converted, saved. So what is weed, what is tear, actually become children of God, uh, become saints. Sinners persecute saints, but they are converted and become saints themselves like Paul. That's millennium. I'm not Amil, as Luther was, because millennium is very central to the whole prophetic teaching of the Bible. And it doesn't begin in Revelation 20. It begins at least in Isaiah 2.
1: Vishal, we knew going into this discussion that there was no way that you could take your entire thesis and flesh it out. But this is what I want to leave my listeners with. Obviously, Vishal's thesis has the requirement that you go to various parts of the Bible, which is God's word. And there are people who just want an easy cliff notes, just tell me what I'm supposed to believe. But that's not what makes good kings and lords and priests. In other words, we have to be pursuing an understanding of what God is saying. And one of the things that you mentioned to me, Vishal, is that you specifically based on your orientation, wanted to remain anchored in the scriptures, but you are not averse to people critiquing your work, challenging your work. But I have to tell you that it takes a while to have it settle in. And so if a lot of what you've heard today is a bit confusing, then do what he said. Read the book of Revelation. And then read the books of Ezekiel and, and Zechariah and Isaiah and look at God's word as a unified whole. Um, there's no race here, right? There's going to be no test at the end to say you understand his thesis exactly, but we're all to be representative kings on the earth. And that's what really energized me as I was exploring this. And I'll, I'll be the first to tell you, Vishal, Maybe I understand about 70% at this point, but I keep going back and saying, what exactly is he saying? So you're not interested in getting a lot of applause from people. You're interested in hearing that people are considering your point of view and are willing to ask questions, willing to discuss it so that this new temple, this new Jerusalem, which your thesis is, it's the church, the body of Christ is effective on the earth?
0: Well, what I'd love to do is have 10 days where a group of 20, 30, 40 people uh, stays together, spends six to eight hours a day studying the book of Revelation. You go through every word, every verse, and uh, people can bring their commentaries. I'll have only the scriptures. We, we study at least for five, six hours a day and have several hours for individual, steady, reflection, talks, rest. Because my views are so unconventional, I don't get invited to teach the book of Revelation. <laughs> but I think to take the time to have this completely fresh perspective on the book would be necessary because this is not about eschatology as such. My Philadelphia lectures are victorious church. The damage that American theology has done is to the church. The courts marginalized the church, but before the courts did, it was theologians who marginalized the church. And we have to recover the concept, is the church the rider on the white horse in chapter 6? Is the church the woman, the New Jerusalem, the glorious woman of Revelation 12? Is the church the angel? that is to bind Satan, to fill the earth with the knowledge of God. So recovering a biblical theology of the church is really what my passion is.
1: And I would say a real test will be if this interests someone who's listening and says, well, I don't know, it's a little confusing. The desire to understand it is going to be a mark. Even if you you studied everything that Vishal says, and you reject it because of this, this, or this, at least you would have gone in and explored it from the point of view of what does the text of the Bible say. And I think, by and large, people don't recognize that the average person needs to be a theologian, because we all are theologians. The question is, are we good theologians or wanting theologians that we don't honestly look at God's word talking to us and expecting us to apply it. So Vishal, I want to thank you. I'm hoping that eventually (laughs) these will make it into a book. And I realize there's a long process with that, but you referenced something you were interested in, in having a meeting or a series of meeting with a group of people. Let's say somebody listening says, I would love to discuss this with him. How would people get in touch with you?
0: Uh, my website is revelationmovement.com, revelationmovement.com, but my email also available. I mean, the simplest thing is to go on Facebook, Vishal Mangalwadi. Uh, I have several pages, but the one which has my, my picture with my wife, Vishal Mangalwadi, just send me a message there and then we will communicate.
1: Yes. And I can tell you that Vishal will communicate. Vishal... I put you in the category of someone who isn't going to be afraid of questions. As a matter of fact, you relish them.
0: Thank you. That's true.
1: All right, listeners, I hope you enjoyed this and were challenged by it and gave you food for thought. As always, if you would like to be in touch with me, feel free to contact me at outofthequestionpodcast at gmail.com, and I'll talk to you next time.
0: Thanks for listening to Out of the Question. For more information on this and other topics, please visit calcedon.edu.